Hey, Piers, it's Michelle. I've got some exciting news. The Piers Project has just produced a podcast for Red by Moddy Body, the iconic period underwear brand for tweens and teens. In this new podcast series, The Red Tales, we share stories celebrating the messy and iconic parts of our teenage years and bodies. Every fortnight, we'll be joined by a young Aussie who isn't afraid to open up, laugh and celebrate the time they got their first period, stood up to their first bully and recovered from their first heartbreak. So make sure to tune in now to our podcast for Moddy Body, The Red Tales, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, Peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, Peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Admitting our weaknesses can be an intimidating task, but the only way to grow is to embrace vulnerability. This is exactly what pushed our next guest to take a leap of faith and start her business, despite having no industry experience. After all, if there's no risk, there's no reward. I'm super excited to welcome Vanessa Stoffer-Matcher onto the show today. Vanessa is a Forbes 30 Under 30 listee and co-founder of Ray & Oro, a leading fine jewellery company based in Los Angeles. I can't wait to talk to Vanessa today about how embracing vulnerability shaped her career and how we can get better at taking risks. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the amazing Vanessa Stoffenmacher. Vanessa, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Cool. So, you know, you and I connected very recently actually over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and the last kind of 10 years in business and all the amazing companies you've built, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I mean, I love what you do and the entrepreneurs you've talked to. So I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Amazing. Cool. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. I uh, most recently founded the company Ray and Oro, uh, which means truth and gold. 
And uh, I was really hoping to bring new meaning to fine jewelry. There was nothing that really connected with me in the fine jewelry space. So I wanted to create a company that really spoke to my values and spoke to what I was looking for uh, in the jewelry industry. So happy to dive more into that with your questions coming soon, I'm sure. Um, but that's what I, you know, been up to for the last six years. Yeah, it's so amazing and so fascinating and I can't wait to dive deeper into that. But before we do, I'd like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? It's a good question because I feel like it really has impacted my life and choices. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York in a city called Rochester And uh, I moved to Florida for my high school years, and then I moved to California for college. And I think having that duality of this East Coast, you know, being brought up on the East Coast, having that mindset of kind of like work 24-7, everything is about work ethic and, you know, just doing so much and then moving out to California where health is prioritized and kind of taking a step back and and balance is such an important aspect of life, having those two dualities and having to figure out how to kind of mesh them together because they're both really important to me. I think having a strong work ethic and finding balance in your life uh, are extremely important. So I think um, my upbringing on the East Coast and my my recent move to uh, the West Coast have really helped merge that. Mm. I love it. I, I find it so fascinating asking that question because I often feel like, yeah, it does really play a role in kind of how we show up today, what we've actually achieved and done. So I want to deep dive a little bit into Vanessa, the early years. So, you know, as a child growing up in upstate New York, you know, what was that time like for you? What did you love to do? You know, were you always super creative? Talk to us a little bit about that. I was and still am super introverted person. And it took me a really long time to get used to that and feel comfortable around that. So I have two sisters. I'm a middle child. I have a, a younger and older <laughs> sister. <laughs> and uh, they're both very extroverted. So I grew up kind of sandwiched in between two really extroverted uh, sisters and a very extroverted mother. Uh, so kind of a very loud female focused family. And I was always the quiet one, kind of in the background. Uh, and I always thought that it was something I needed to change about myself. I thought that, um, you know, I needed to take classes to to network or figure out how I could be more outgoing and, and all of these things. And it wasn't until I, I really moved to California on my own, moved to Los Angeles, that I, I really accepted who I was and uh, embraced that. And I think once I embraced that, a whole new world opened up for me and it really changed my perspective on a lot of things. So interesting. I think it is sometimes when we just leave the nest or, you know, we leave home and kind of everything we've known. And for you, it was moving to the other side of the country over in the US, you know, that's huge. And, you know, it's, it's, I feel like it takes something almost as big as that sometimes for us to really come out of our shells and to really get to know who we are and what we really want to do. So, Talk to us a little bit about that time there, heading into college, you know, making the move over. You know, I saw that you studied at Otis College of Art and Design in LA and you did a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Talk to us a little bit about that time there, the move, and how you think that shaped you into kind of who you became. 
It was such a pivotal time in my life, for sure. I mean, not only was I leaving my comfort zone, I was leaving everything I knew. Like you said, moving across the country completely, didn't know anyone in Los Angeles. So really starting fresh. It was exciting, but very scary, especially for someone with a personality like myself, more introverted. Uh, so yeah, it was it was scary and exciting. And I, I learned a lot about myself. And it, again, that was just a time that I fully embraced my personality of being more introverted. And I, I saw, started to find, you know, what I typically thought, or I used to think of were my weaknesses I saw as my strengths. Um, so, you know, I started to pick up on the fact that I was very sensitive about things and I'd, I'd go on a walk and I'd pick up on these things and I'd, I'd notice things that no one else was noticing. And I was like, wow, this sensitivity is actually a gift of mine. This isn't, you know, a, a bad thing. I've always thought of sensitivity as, you know, we're told a lot that you're too sensitive, you know, you have to be tougher, all of these things. And I, I started to realize, wow, this is actually a gift and I can use it to my advantage. Uh, and not everyone can kind of sense these sensitivities that I'm feeling. So um, it's once I embraced that fully, it's like a whole new, whole new world opened up. Mm. I love that. I think, you know, so so many of us can just feel really not ashamed, but almost just embarrassed to talk about the things that, you know, we think maybe, you know, we shouldn't be this certain way or the traits that we have that we think, oh, well, will society really, really accept that? Is that okay? You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who perhaps they've, they've got some of those traits that they're embarrassed to kind of talk about, or maybe they don't see them as valuable assets yet? You know, what advice would you give to them? I mean, the biggest life-changing thing for me was embracing vulnerability. And as soon as you start talking about that and opening up, you realize that people are on your side rather than, you know, when you're fighting against it yourself, then other people will kind of fight against it as well. And as soon as you break down that barrier and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later too, but with my team, it was one of my, the biggest things that I promoted was just uh, leading through vulnerability and being vulnerable, it just gets everyone on the same side and, and it allows people to open up in ways that you never thought people would open up. And it's amazing how people want to be on your side. It's just allowing them to, to come in and, and be on your side. Mm, I love that. And what were some of the practical, like, I guess, practical tips that you did to really start embracing? So, you know, new city, new kind of place you're living in at college at that time, you know, what were some of the things you, you did to really start to embrace you? It's a good question. I was so into my schoolwork. I've always been really into not necessarily school, but especially art school. It's, you know, I was doing what I was passionate about. I've, my mom was a graphic designer. I kind of grew up, I was lucky enough to grow up knowing that I wanted to go into design uh, at a very early age. So, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was playing around on Photoshop and, you know, that's what I would do during my spare time. And so when I moved out to LA, I was, uh, you know, spending 12 hours a day at school you know, taking on electives and taking on projects wherever I could because I loved it. Um, it wasn't a job to me. It was just something that I loved doing. And Otis is a, an amazing school, but it's not known for its social scene. So uh, I didn't feel like I was missing out by not necessarily going to the, you know, frat parties and all of that. I really was focused on 
learning as much as I could and kind of soaking in being a sponge and taking as many classes in different areas as I could just to understand what I loved, what I didn't like and test it all out. I guess it was just curiosity. Mm. So interesting. And I think it's, I think I saw that straight after college that you really, you went overseas and you were like, great, let's, you know, let's do this. I think you spent about three months in Paris, which is so cool to see, you know, talk to us a little bit about after that time where you were so focused and you were just really trying to work on your craft over, I think it was a period of about four, three, four years. And then that decision to head to Paris for a little bit, talk to us about that time there and what you think and what you learnt, I guess, most about yourself during that time? I think it was a week after I graduated that I moved over to Paris and I didn't know how long I would be there. I had, you know, thought maybe it would be a few months, maybe it'd be a few years. I was kind of leaving it open because I wanted to see what would come of it. And um, Paris has always been, you know, very romantic. I, I love the design that comes from Paris and I, Everyone has kind of a romantic idea of Paris in their mind, as I did. And um, I just wanted to explore. It was the right, felt like the right time to do it. And during my years in college, I had probably done, I don't know, maybe eight different internships. So I was working all the time throughout college and just, again, just trying to see what I liked and what I didn't like and, you know, working for a graphic designer versus a marketing firm versus a consumer goods company and just trying to test the waters. And and in, I knew when I moved to Paris, I wanted to work there as well. And that was one of the main reasons I wanted to move there was just to see how the work culture was over there and establish myself in a different country. And so I... I had, before I graduated college, I went over to Paris to stay with a friend and look for jobs that I could apply to and uh, found a job at a marketing agency and started as soon as I got there after I graduated. So I started at this marketing agency and, you know, it was interesting. I, I thought it would be totally different than work in the U.S., but I realized it's kind of work is work <laughs> and a job is a job. And when you're a creative person and you're working for someone else, it's, it's tough, especially as an introverted person. Like my ideas just weren't heard as much as I wanted to. I wasn't able to express myself fully. I felt like I was just kind of expressing someone else's vision and not my own. So it was during that time that I was working in Paris, loving it, but I knew that's not what I wanted to continue doing. And so I had to make the decision of, you know, do I look for another full-time job or do I start something on my own? Uh, And I had an offer back in LA from Disney for a really good job. Um, So it was kind of going, I was really split 50-50. Do I take this job at Disney? It's safe. It's a growth path. You know, it's probably a good, you know, it's a great thing for your resume, et cetera. Or do I start a graphic design studio, knowing nothing about it, having zero clients. And uh, I remember talking to my parents about it and they're like, you know, you're young, this is the time in your life, you can test things out. If you really you know, feel like you want to try this out, we'll back you whatever you decide. And having that confidence really helped me. I, I decided to start my own design studio and moved back to LA and that's, that's that. <laughs> I love it. I find it so fascinating hearing kind of how we get into business or how we get into creating our own things. And I think 
having that pivotal moment of, well, it's really 50, like you were 50, 50 split between, should I just go down that comfortable route with a great company and really kind of build my resume in quotation marks? Or do I just take that leap of faith and figure it out, even though I don't really know what's going on? You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they're facing a similar thing? Maybe it is that, you know, you know, unfortunately something is during this whole crisis, something has happened with their jobs and maybe they're thinking, well, I've always wanted to go out there and start this thing, but I just don't know. Like what, like what should I do? What advice would you give to them? It's scary. I, I've gotten this question a few times and you know, it's, I feel almost hesitant giving advice because it's not for everyone and it's, it is really hard and it sounds exciting starting a business and it sounds like, you know, a lot of passion and excitement and and it is, it's fun. Um, but it's also just really hard and, and you have to have the right personality for it. I've had a lot of friends start businesses and they come to find out, you know, it really isn't for them. They, they want weekends, they want their nights free. They want, they want to socialize with people and uh, having a business kind of cuts into that. So I would say, I guess, make sure that it really is what you want. And there are trade-offs that come with it. And if you're, you know, if you're really serious about it, then there's a lot of trade-offs, but if you're super passionate and you love working and it doesn't even feel like work when you're in the flow of it, then for me, it was having someone else kind of be that cheerleader for me that gave me the confidence to go for it. I don't know if I had to you know, sit in a room and make the decision by myself with no outside opinions if I could do it, but at first having my, um, each business I've started, actually, I've had different cheerleaders and at first it was my my parents who were cheerleaders for me and that really helped kind of nudge me in the right direction and and feel like okay I'm not in this alone I have I have the, their backing I find it yeah I find it so interesting for those of us who you know perhaps our parents aren't our biggest you know maybe they just right. don't support every decision that we do you know what would be your advice and I guess guidance on going out there and finding those cheerleaders it could really be anyone and it has been different people in my life in different times you know the next business I started my parents were not as big of cheerleaders they're <laughs> like I don't think this is gonna work and it was my husband who was really helping me um or a friend and I think it's it's anyone that you feel comfortable enough talking to. Like for me, it's even hard to talk to someone about a new idea that I have. I feel like I have to have it fully formulated. And so I feel very vulnerable when I come to someone with a new idea. So it's anyone that you trust enough to get their honest opinion. Uh, And a lot of times a new idea, people don't understand it, which is also hard. So it's not even getting their buy-in on the idea. It's just getting their buy-in on like, having, you know, they're there for you to support you, whether it works or not. And just knowing that they're there is, is helpful. 100%. I think there've been so many times for me when it's, I don't really get what you're trying to do, but it's okay. I'll (laughs) support you, you know, which is always so so valuable. It is. So I love it. So let's talk about that move from back from Paris to LA decision to start your design agency. So from my understanding, it was called Duke Designs. You did it for about three years. Talk to us a little bit about that experience there. And you said, you know, business is hard and, you know, just like everyone else has started 
you might have also had that kind of rude awakening when you started Duke Designs. <laughs> yeah. What um, what were those early years like and what did you have to do? What were those first steps you had to do to get it off the ground? It was a hustle and, you know, <laughs> the times are changing and what I did then would not work today. So I hope no one takes this as advice on what to do today and starting a design firm. But, I, yeah, when I launched, I didn't have any clients. I didn't know exactly where to find clients. But I um, I knew I was going to make it work somehow. So what I did literally was I drove around my neighborhood and I um, wrote down all of the names of these the businesses that I saw that I thought could use design help. And I wrote down their addresses or Googled them and I sent them letters, like physical letters, um, like a stationery I had designed with like samples of my work. So I sent them like a little care package, design care package. And it was like, if you need a designer, I'd love to work with you. I'm in the neighborhood. I'm starting out. Uh, I have a great rate because I'm just starting out and I'm looking for work for my portfolio. So I'd love to partner with you. And I also posted on Craigslist a lot, which I probably wouldn't recommend today, but back then it was kind of like it worked. Um, it wasn't infiltrated with the whatever it is now, but yeah, just between those two things and kind of just those cold reach outs, I was able to make, you know, one intro and then two, and then I'd really put my all into the work that I did. So from there, it kind of led to word of mouth and uh, I was able to build the whole network. And, you know, once you have a few solid clients that really, and you, you really do care about the work that you're producing and the relationship that you have with the client, then the idea is that it starts to spread and they tell their friends and people that are looking for designers. So kind of spread from there. Mm. I love it. I think so many of us to this day, undervalue the the value of word of mouth. You know, I think it is, you know, it's just so evident from your story, even if back in the day, you know, Facebook advertising wasn't a thing or whatever it may be, you know, I think still just word of mouth. And I love that you kind of put together those care packages because at the end of the day, physical mail isn't going away. It's still a thing. And I think almost today even more so it's like you're so used to just yeah just shooting someone a dm on linkedin or whatever and instead actually bring that what a delight to get that tangible yeah Yeah. i think that's so so cool that you did that and i think that's definitely something that our peers out there listening could take away and just finding that way to be different right so just so valuable I love it. Okay. So then, you know, once the, you know, word of mouth started to happen and I think you ultimately got about 50 clients and you were managing all of these different clients and doing that work. What did year three look like in that business? And then how did the idea for, um, I think it was called something else initially. I think it was heirloom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Yes. It's a very interesting story. I, Well, so year three, deck design, I had hired an employee. So I had a full-time employee, which was my first time, you know, being a a manager. I say that in quotes. Um, But it was my first time kind of learning how to work with someone else because I was so used to working on my own. uh, And I didn't have to, you know, tell someone else, delegate. You know, there's a whole other skill set that comes with managing and delegating. So I was learning that day by day, which was, you know, turned out to be a great life lesson later on but I was also feeling you know I had all these design clients and I was starting to feel like it was getting a little stale all of these customers were coming to me and they were 
looking for me to create their brand identity. And I kept being like, I'm not the one to create your identity. I can make it look good. And I, but I feel like I'm just putting makeup on it. Like the identity has to come from you. So I started to feel like uh, this urge to really own an identity and create an identity. And um, I've always loved I felt like, you know, having meaningful products, you're able to communicate so much through them. They're almost like a vessel to communicate something larger. So I had this, you know, grand idea of wanting to have a, a product or a site or something that was bigger than just kind of doing everyone else's identity design and branding. I wanted to have one of my own, I guess. And um, it was an interesting time because startups were becoming a buzzword. You know, startups weren't even a, really a, a big thing before that. No one really talked about startups. You were either a small business or a corporation. And the startups were becoming kind of the hot new thing. My older sister had just graduated from business school and I, my background is in design. So we were talking and we're like, you know, with your background in business, my background in design, why don't we join forces and start something together? We didn't know what we wanted to start. We just knew we wanted to start a business together. So we had complementary uh, skill sets and we were talking about it. You know, we do brainstorm sessions and then we realized we're like, what's a, what's a problem that we both have? And it's so trivial, but uh, a problem that we both had was that our husbands were terrible at buying us gifts. And we're like, oh my gosh, other women must feel the same pain that we feel when we get these gifts from our husbands and they're just so off. So we decided to look into that and we realized fine jewelry is the number one gift that men give women. And I, we created this site that used a learning algorithm. So we created this whole learning algorithm and it matched um, fine jewelry to through a basic set of personality questions as well as shopping behaviors to whoever you're looking to buy present for. And uh, so we started, we became kind of this marketplace for fine jewelry. I have no background in jewelry. I didn't grow up wearing much jewelry. This kind of really came out of the blue out of, you know, this, this problem that we had. So we started working with these jewelers all across the U.S. and they would send us their jewelry. I would be photographing it and putting it up on our website and doing kind of this marketing around it. And I started to realize, you know, have all this jewelry that they're sending me and they're sending them to me in these plastic baggies. It says, you know, made in China. And I'm realizing that it's all like, you know, pre-made designs that are coming from catalogs. They're just basically selecting the designs, putting their name on it marking it up, selling it to us, we're marking it up and putting it on the website. And, you know, these things that are like $3,000, selling for $3,000 on the website, I'm sure it costs like $30 to produce or something. And the amount of markups that are involved and just like the quality of it, seeing it in person versus like polished online. I was like, oh, I had no idea this is the behind the scenes of this industry. It just felt so, it didn't feel good. And, you know, selling a product that I didn't really believe in myself. I was like, if I knew the whole story behind these products, I wouldn't purchase them myself. And I'm sitting here selling them on a website. Like this is not, this isn't, this isn't good. <laughs> and, and so that was kind of a, a really that was a revelation for me. It was a, an awakening to be, you know, again, I don't have a background in jewelry. I didn't know how it traditionally worked. So I think coming into that industry pretty naive um, actually helped me because I 
I really saw it with a fresh set of eyes and I was like, whoa, this is how it operates. Like, this isn't cool. Uh, I can change this. I think I can do something differently that, you know, feels better. Um, so that was, you know, the company with my sister heirloom, it, it ended up not working. Um, I wouldn't say it failed because, well, sure it failed because it didn't work, but I, I love failures in that sense because they teach us and they allow us to go in different ways. So my sister, you know, moved into private equity and I moved into brain Yeah, Huge. Wow. It's, it's just so interesting. There are so many points there that I just resonated so much with me. I think that firstly, that one around you having that fresh lens and look into an industry that you'd never been in and kind of actually realizing a major issue with it and actually realizing that that's the issue that you wanted to solve through your business and through what you were really great at. Um, I think so many of us see, you know, us not having the experience or the expertise or whatever it may be as a huge detriment. And we kind of think, oh, well, who are we to go in there and do anything in that industry? And I think, you know, I think just that value that you said, the value it really does bring, you know, what advice just on that would you give to our peers out there who feel like they're almost that sense of like imposter syndrome mm-hmm. if they they want to change something in an industry that they've got no background or experience in? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, I mean, advice again, <laughs> it's a tough one, but <laughs> I would say the going in blind or naive or however you want to say it, was such a helpful part of this process for me because I was just questioning. I was just so curious and I wanted to learn and I was kind of questioning everything. And I'd talk to manufacturers, jewelry manufacturers, and they're like, you know, I was like, I really want the diamond to sit lower in the setting. And they're like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't, you don't do it like that. And I was like, oh, why? And they're like, oh, we just have never done it like that. And I'm like, well, why can't you do it like that? And they're like, well, it's just not how it's done. I'm like, why not? <laughs> and it, I started to realize like that was kind of the way the whole business was working. No one was really questioning and getting to the bottom of things of why. No one was asking why. It was just, well, that's how it's been done and that's what we do. And I think just going in curious, you know, I wasn't judging. I wasn't trying to like poke holes and, and say that's wrong. I was just honestly very curious about why it's done this way and if it's done for a reason then great I'll respect that and do it that way but if if there's no reason and it's just been done uh for traditional you know it's just done that way because of tradition then maybe there's an opportunity to change that maybe there's an opportunity to do it better and and create a product that resonates more with someone that's that's more modern so I think you know I I was pleasantly surprised that people were very open and I think again coming into it not not knowing much about the industry, I was I was able to create friendships and partnerships rather than people thinking, like feeling threatened by me. I don't think a lot of people felt very threatened by me because <laughs> they're like, oh, this poor girl knows nothing about jewelry and I must teach her. <laughs> so that kind of vulnerability and just open-mindedness and curiosity helped me gain a lot of partners that might have looked at me as more of competition if I had been an expertise, an expert in the industry. Um, And, you know, they became allies and they turned into partners and we worked together and uh, we were both able to kind of flourish because of it. And, you know, they admitted after a year or two that they learned so much from me, which was, I had no idea. They're like, wow, you 
you really opened my eyes to new ways of doing things. And I, I really didn't even know that I was doing that. <laughs> I was just asking mm. a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just so great to hear. I think it just, you know, gives us all that confidence to go out there and just you know, ask those questions and knowing that there's nothing wrong with you asking and that literally just people can actually learn from you even when maybe you don't have that skill set or the expertise that you think you need. Right. I love it. Cool. So I guess I want to talk obviously about, you know, that transition to Ray and Oro. You know, you said that after you and your sister decided that, you know, this wasn't working, et cetera, you decided to make that shift. A question I've got for you is how do you pick yourself up when you feel like you've spent the last year or the last six months or whatever it was doing something that ended up in quotation marks failing? You know, how do we get into that mindset to go, it's okay, like we can do it and we can pivot? I was so kind of fired up by what I had found out in this industry and I felt like I had like just thrown back the curtain and found like Oz behind there, like, you know, tinkering on things. And I was like, so my mind was just blown that this is how it's working. So I guess I was just so passionate and fired up that I was like, ready to jump in and, and start this new business. But it was a tough time for sure, because I, I can't say that things ended super amicably between my sister and I. It was it was a rough uh, few months that we had, and it, it took us some time to get back to a great relationship, which we luckily have now. Um, but it was, you know, we have different personalities, and we realized pretty early on that it's hard for us to work together. So we decided that, you know, that was, that was the hardest part of moving on to the next business was doing it without her um, and without her support really, but being so excited about the idea that I just, I needed to do it anyway. Yeah, that was the hardest part. So interesting. So talk to us about then that pivot and Brian Oro, you know, what, how did you start that company you know what were the first few things you did and then I think it was in year two that you guys were acquired which is so early and so amazing but you know talk to us about that then that acquisition and what happened after that yeah so I started Brain Aura with uh, my best friend at the time (laughs) again another interesting partnership Um, and you know early on in the business you're doing everything together you're just you know, everything is just kind of the day-to-day operations. Like, how do we physically get this done? And I honestly had no, we didn't have a business plan. It wasn't like, let's be in five years. We want to be here, here, here. We were pretty ad hoc about it. And we were pretty, you know, kind of just excited and wanted to see where it would go. We had $8,000 to work with and uh, we had to create our whole first collection with that to get packaging. We had to get a website up. We had to get photos, everything for $8,000. So it was scrappy, very, very scrappy. Uh, We found a manufacturer who was willing to work with us and he was really excited about the idea of getting online. And he produced one of each of our products so we could photograph it and put it on our website. And, you know, each product that we designed, we had, I think, 10 different designs when we first launched. And each design, it probably took us 10 or 15 rounds of uh, revisions with him to get it right. 
because we were just sketching in our sketchbook. I didn't know how to use jewelry software or anything. I was just sketching a design and showing it to him. He'd produce it. And I was like, eh, that doesn't look how I envisioned it. <laughs> I got to change this. And no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's not what I was thinking. And <laughs> again, it was a lot of like he was doing it the way that it had been done for years. And it came out kind of clunky and chunky and we had to shave it off and he's like are you sure you want to go this small and he kept everything he's like this is so small and I was like smaller smaller <laughs> so it was just a lot of refinement and I was so grateful to have him to go through that process with us uh, we were lucky to you know be able to find someone that really believed in us that we didn't have a lot of the other manufacturers we talked to were had MOQs of, you know, we had to buy at least $50,000 of inventory up front or, you know, something like that, that would have just totally been a barrier to entry. And having this, really this guy, this jeweler uh, work with us was um, really helpful for sure. So we had our first collection, um, did all of the modeling shots on ourselves. Uh, it was so close up that we just like cropped off our faces and it was just like a hand photo. I remember I was like under a desk taking pictures of my hands. It was, it was very scrappy. <laughs> so great. But, you know, my background in design really helped because I was able to take good enough pictures that they stood out and they didn't look so homemade. Uh, it was a professional enough, I guess. It passed as professional enough. And so we put a, these photos up on the website. We had our first 10 products. And the first year, we were basically making the products to order, but with, we didn't even tell our customers they were made to order because we had a two to three day turnaround time. So we'd get orders and we'd put them on this Google Excel sheet in the morning. We'd send it to our partner manufacturer and by the next day, he'd have them ready for us. We'd pick them up. We'd package them at his little booth in downtown LA and then run to USPS. And, you know, every day it was like 4.59 and they were closing the gates of USPS. And we're like, wait. And they're like, oh, gosh, these crazy girls are here again with these packages. And like, please take the packages. And so, you know, we're doing that for a good year before we were able to hire someone else. And and that's really what the first year is. It's just kind of day to day. And, you know, you're doing everything yourself. You're answering emails, you're taking Instagram photos, you're packaging, you're shipping, you're being the model, <laughs> you're being the model. You are a one man shop. And in this case, it's a two man shop. But yeah, it was exciting. It's fun. And then, you know, once you graduate after that year and you start hiring, then you start to realize that you have to kind of figure out what your specialty is and where you can focus your time and what you can give up. Um, and that's where I started to kind of find issues with my co-founder and myself. So that's was another hard, hard learning lesson for myself. <laughs> so fascinating. I think it's just so refreshing to hear, you know, th what the early days are like. You know, I think so many of us have this really glamorous view of maybe we do, maybe we don't, of, of what entrepreneurship or what starting a jewelry line for you or a business, any type of business is like. And it's just so refreshing to hear kind of really what it's about and knowing that it, it really does take that grit and that daily kind of work ethic from the founder or the person starting um, to even get to a point where you can actually kind of look to employ someone or et cetera. 
So talk to us a little bit about then those first couple of employees. Obviously, you, I'm guessing you, you split from your partner, maybe um, your business partner. Is that what happened? And then the acquisition after that? Yeah, it's a bit of that. And, um, you know, I think some companies are lucky enough to have funding early on. So they kind of skip a lot of the stages that we went through. But I honestly think it was one of the most important things that we did was not getting funding early on and was bootstrapping it because we I learned every single aspect of that business. You know, there was so later on when I was hiring people, there was nothing that I didn't know how to do myself. I was just hiring people that could do it better and more efficiently, but I knew the ins and outs of it so I could speak to it. And I felt like, you know, it, it was never a disconnect. Whereas if we had raised money early on and just hired people to do the things that we didn't want to do or didn't feel like we were great at, I wouldn't have understood what went into it. And, you know, a lot of times people misunderstand the amount of effort or time that goes into a job or a position And so I feel fortunate that I was able to, you know, even crafting an email, it's not just like writing words, like you have to think about that, you have to like, understand, you have to really, you know, sometimes I would write drafts and get people's opinions on them. And this is that's a very important interaction that you're having. uh, And it has to be right. And so little things like that really helped kind of pave the path forward and provide a lot of empathy and, um, in terms of when we hired our team, we were able to understand where they were coming from when issues arose. And so when we started hiring, the first big hire that we hired was a operations director. I geared towards the creative side. So I kind of took the responsibility of creative director and the operations part. And my co-founder at the time had studied business in school. And so she kind of took this like business development side And then we hired an operations director to really figure out the day-to-day, the shipping and the production and all of these logistical things that weren't either of our expertise. So we had this business, we had this operations director, I was taking on creative and kind of marketing and it kind of left my co-founder in a, in a weird position. And I, I, you know, empathize a lot with her situation now, but, you know, she felt like she didn't really necessarily have a, a total role in the company. Um, And I know it kind of felt like she felt like she just wasn't providing the right value. And it's hard when you don't have kind of clear roles set out in the beginning or, or, you know, clear paths that you guys can both take on that are, you know, complementary to each other. So I think that was one of the main issues that we had is just we didn't have enough of a difference that we were both able to add clear value. So I decided, I think it was like after a year and a half in business, I approached her and we had talked a lot of times about this and I had asked if I could buy her out. And it was, again, a rocky road. I can't say it was the easiest thing. It was definitely a really hard thing, especially because we were friends, really good friends outside of that. And it really did hinder our friendship. And, you know, I'm lucky to be talking with her again today, but, and she's on doing amazing things now, but it was, it was tough for sure. And, you know, she, we had to figure out how to value our company, which was so new to both of us. And it's a year and a half. How do you value a startup company? And we had very different ideas on how it would be, how it was valued and lawyers got involved and it, it got messy and it got, yeah, it was, it was bad. 
but that happened. We both learned a lot for sure. Um, she, <laughs> I ended up buying her out and, and she, um, started something else. And then during that, it was really during that same time period, we were talking about launching into engagement rings. So prior to that, we didn't have any engagement rings on our site. It was just everyday fine jewelry. And I, I started doing a lot of research on engagement rings and especially around the diamonds and diamond sourcing, because I knew I wanted to offer transparency around where our diamonds were coming from. And I didn't know too much about the process. Currently, we were buying really small diamonds through um, you know, what's called the Kimberley Process Act, which is it's kind of an, an act that says, okay, these diamonds that you purchased are conflict-free. And that's kind of this what you get. That's all you get. So I was like, what is this Kimberley Process Act? And <laughs> what, I don't, Questions yeah. came again. <laughs> <laughs> Curious. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> what's behind this? And so I started digging a little more and, you know, when we were doing such small volume with such small diamonds, I felt like assured that at least there was something in place, a policy in place that was protecting the goods that we were getting or the materials we were buying. But once we started doing more volume and larger stones, I was like, it's time to really investigate and put resources towards this. So I started reaching out to uh, diamond suppliers and industries and you know, it's like, okay, where do you get your diamonds from? And they're like, oh, I get them from this place. And I talk to that place. Where do you get your diamonds from? I get them from this place. Where do you get your diamonds from? Literally, I'm talking to the same person again. By the time I've talked to eight different people, I'm like, okay, so this is going around in circles. No one knows where their stones are actually coming from. This is scary. And this Kimberly Process Act is kind of just made up and it's own, you know, it's started by the Diamond Producers Association. It's really kind of smoke and mirrors. So it's like, this is shady. I don't really want to be involved in this. I know our customers are going to want to know, not to mention, I really want to know where our stones are coming from and make sure that there's no ethical issues there. And, you know, you talk about blood diamonds, but more so than kind of like the, the dirty labor practices that go into it. I'm concerned about what these diamonds are funding like there's wars going on and there's things being funded through these industries that we have no idea and I do not you know we don't want that on our hands for sure and so it really concerned me that I wasn't able to trace the materials that we were looking into buying back to their source so I started looking for alternative diamonds and or stones and getting really disheartened and um kind of almost at one point decided to just give up on diamonds and I was like maybe we just do engagement rings without diamonds and turn to another stone but other stones have issues too uh so it really wasn't until I was probably a few months later I was literally scrolling through Instagram and I came across an influencer that we had worked with and had become one of our friends and she had posted about her new engagement and she said my diamond was grown in California and I was like what do you mean my diamond? Your diamond was grown in California? Diamonds grow in California? This is mind-blowing. Like, what? I'm so excited. So I reached out to her and I was like, what is this all about? And she told me about her diamond being grown through solar technology by a company called Diamond Foundry that was based in uh, Silicon Valley. And I was like, this is so amazing. I need to learn more about this. And you know, it, I didn't know much about lab-grown diamonds at the time, but if someone had approached me and said, do you want to use lab-grown diamonds without knowing anything about it, I would have said, 
no, no, we, we're like a very high quality company. We only use quality materials. We don't really want to use synthetic materials because I didn't know much about it. I didn't, you know, to me, a lab-grown diamond wasn't a real diamond. And it was kind of the fact that I learned about a lab-grown diamond in a totally different way. It was a diamond grown in California through solar technology and it was grown from a seed of a diamond and it grew in the same. And I, I learned the behind, you know, I learned the actual growth process of the diamond before labeling it a lab grown diamond. And it changed my whole mindset towards it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, if my mindset can change from this, I know I can help other people's mindset shift from this as well. And it's just the fact that we're labeling it, this kind of, you know, we're just slapping this label on it. And then people kind of come up with their, they just automatically, assume what they assume and you know I can't blame them I did as well but it's so powerful once you know the whole story behind something and once you know the whole process of it so anyway I was really excited about this um, discovery of new diamonds that were completely traceable and created through solar energy and basically everything it was combining technology and sustainability and transparency everything that I was really excited about I was rolled into one. And so I started talking to that company and that they are the ones that ended up acquiring us. Huge. It's just so interesting to hear kind of how this stuff goes about. And it's so, it's just such a testament to you and just the fact that you kept digging deeper until you found, (laughs) you know, what was going on. And I just think so many of us just shy away maybe and and we just don't think to dig to that next layer and really figure out, you know, what's happening. You know, just on that, you know, what advice would you give to our peers who perhaps they're a bit afraid to keep digging and they're just a bit like, if that's how it's done, it's how it's done. You know, what advice would you give to them? I I guess I'd say it's it's definitely a mindset because I've, I've talked to some people that are, you know, more traditional in their mindset and, you know, they're like, well, that's how it is. That's how it is. And to me, that's never been, that's the exciting part when I have a question mark and, and someone says, that's how it is. That's how it's always been done. I'm like, that's an opportunity right there. That's where the opportunity is, is when it, you know, when people are close-minded about something, that's where I feel like there's these little pockets of opportunities. And that's, I guess, what gets me excited. And like, you know, your heart starts racing a little bit because you're like, oh, great. Yay. I'm glad because now I can change it (laughs) because who wants to do something that's already been done before? You got to find something that hasn't been. And so you really need those opportunities. You really look at yeah, if you can look at it as like an opportunity rather than kind of a roadblock, then uh, I think it starts to open up your mind in, in different ways. Mm, such great advice. Oh, Vanessa, we could literally talk for days. <laughs> I'm finding this so, so interesting. So, look, as we do come to the close, I want to touch on the acqui- on the acquisition and then obviously now your exit. So talk to us a little bit about you know, obviously that was in year two and it, I think you just, you just finished up in year six, you know, six years of this company, this amazing company you've built and now you've exited an end of last year. Talk to us about the growth of the business, where, how being acquired helped grow it and then your decision to exit. Yeah. So we, you know, there was great parts and, and not so great parts about uh, being acquired. And one of the great parts was that we were able to grow a lot faster and more efficiently. 
uh, we now had funds that we could dedicate to advertising and marketing funds that we never, we were so scrappy before, uh, you know, we had maybe a $200 ad budget before, and now we're, you know, doing $200,000 ad budget a month, which I never thought would be possible. But of course, it wasn't that quite, it wasn't overnight, but gradually moved into that. But all of a sudden, we were able to take on opportunities, work with celebrities, and all of these things that really weren't possible before. So it opened up a lot of windows and doors and also just being able to hire these team members that had so much experience. So we were hiring experts in in these fields that I was able to learn from. And again, prior, I, I never thought I'd be able to afford team members that you know, talented. So I was hiring kind of uh, more junior team members who were super passionate and amazing, but didn't necessarily have the experience that we needed to to take the business to the next level. So being able to work with these experienced team members and grow the team that way, as well as, you know, working with budgets for the first time and, you know, really kind of going from a a passion business to a really serious business where we're providing P&Ls and financial reports and, and discussing all of these things that I had never discussed before. I, I actually decided to go back to school during that time to understand how, what this language was. How do I, how do I speak business? Because I didn't, I didn't know. So I took this course in um, business leadership and it really helped kind of give me the language to feel confident in speaking, you know, to our, our P&L and and what is you know what does the bottom line mean and what is this what are, what is net versus growth all these things I had to learn along the way I didn't you know I didn't go to business school so I didn't know so all of that was super helpful and I honestly feel like I I went through business school just by being acquired by this company and, and learning the ins and outs and it was kind of like the hard knocks business school uh, education which I'll always be grateful for and um, you know the the not so glorious side of that is just that with an acquisition we we had different cultures the culture at Diamond Foundry was very different from the culture at Frey and you know it was more of a, a male technology Silicon Valley culture that they had built versus kind of this uh, female-focused, empowered, vulnerable, but sensitive culture that I had built at Frey. And, you know, at first it seemed to be like we could coexist. And then as more time went on, we realized like it's really not, it really does not help a company to have two different cultures. It starts to hinder things and it starts to, you know, cause a lot of cracks and things. And they kind of, people start taking sides. They want this one or they want this one. And it's, it's way more complicated than I ever knew it was going to be. And, and ultimately it, it just led to my decision to decide to leave and, and start something new where I feel like I can really create that culture again, because to me, it's so important. I didn't, you know, everyone talks about how important culture is. And I knew it was important, but I never knew what that really meant until I saw what culture I, I didn't want, <laughs> and uh, or what d- didn't resonate with me. And I, I realized, wow, we do have this culture, I didn't, you know, really put a framework to it or put words to it. But we have this very obvious culture that I had built and and it really was focused around kind of building from the ground up rather than the the top down and so many things went into that and you know when I realized it wasn't really going to mesh with the new parent company it just became my time to and there you know at that point there's there's people that could do my job better than myself you know I think I can I think my expertise or my my passion what I love doing is really the initial phase the vision side of a company and 
and really when that vision when there's no more vision to to be had then I feel like I can I can be better suited somewhere else so I'm excited to kind of start a new journey and um I we left on really good terms but I decided to leave in November I also had my my first daughter in December so I'm a new mom thank you (laughs) so I've been getting to spend a lot of time with my little my new little munchkin there so um yeah I'm looking to start something new again I'm I'm still playing around with what that is um but I I also have a a new baby. Brainor was my first baby, and I have a new baby and <laughs> a real one, uh, which has been really fun. And and I'm looking forward to starting another new baby soon too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Vanessa. Honestly, uh, we so appreciate you being so open with us about the whole process and about everything. And I think. It's just, yeah, it's just so valuable for us to from to learn from you. You know, you've you're someone that's been in business now for almost ten years. You know, across your different businesses and companies, and <laughs> you you've learned so. You know, you, what you've learned and gone through is something that most of us will never even get to kind of experience. And so, we really do appreciate you sharing kind of so openly with us. Of course, it was fun. I'm I'm always glad to share and <laughs> excited that people actually want to hear the story. So thank you. <laughs> oh, one hundred percent, of course. So look, as we come to the close of today's episode, there is just one final question um, that I've got to ask you. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Vanessa, for the phenomenal work that you've done over the years. You know, you were recently, or you know, you've made it on the Forbes City Under Thirty list and gotten a lot of recognition for your work. And I guess. The most valuable part of, I guess, your story and what you've done is is really you've been able to show us, you know, especially us, you know, female, young females out there that who have big goals and big dreams and big ambitions that we really can do it. And, you know, it won't be easy and it will be difficult, but if we stick to it and we stick to the vision and we just go after what we want, we can actually achieve that. So for that, we really appreciate you. Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. So our final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what's the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? It's a good question. Uh, oh my gosh, it's everything. I mean, I am not the type to be super motivated by money. I'm not a shopper. I don't, I prefer small houses to big houses. So to me, the most important thing in life is waking up every morning excited to do what you love doing and it's such a gift to be able to do it even if you're going through a hard time and it's you know definitely every day is not definitely not a good day but to be excited about it to have that passion to have that heartbeat that race that you know in that flow where you can be doing something that you are passionate about and just time kind of just melts away that's my favorite thing I feel very lucky and blessed that I'm able to find that and be able to to make it into a career. So for me, it's you know much more important than how much money I make. It's it's how am I spending my days and am I happy doing that? And you know if you can if you can find that thing that kind of you get lost in time, then I feel like you've you've found it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, Vanessa, ladies and gentlemen. We have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Right now, uh, I am updating my website, which is just my full name, VanessaStoffenmacher.com. And that's where my most recent work and 
resume and I'll update it with my next venture and all that fun stuff. Um, I'd love to say I'm more active on Instagram than I am, but I'm not at the moment. <laughs> but again, you that's probably something baby. I'll, yeah, exactly. Something I'll pick up again soon, but my website and LinkedIn always hit me up on LinkedIn. I love when people reach out. It's exciting to me. So please reach out. Perfect. We'll link him up in the show notes and Thanks so much again, Vanessa. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.